You're listening to the Scottsdale Podcast, which features our Sunday sermons. If you would like to learn more about what God is doing in the life of Scottsdale Baptist Church, visit our website at scottsdale.org. Enjoy and be challenged by the word of the Lord. Well, good morning and welcome to Scott's Hill. So glad all of you able to join us. I love gathering together with a faith family as we gather to celebrate together. We pray together, we worship together, and we study God's word together. Just want to remind you that this Tuesday night, we're going to have a special called prayer meeting and every Tuesday night for the month of October. Our elders have discussed this and we felt like there's one area in the life of our church that God's calling us to, and that is a time of of corporate praying together in a concerted way. And we're going to begin this Tuesday night in this room from 6.30 to 7.30. And we're calling you and asking you to come and be a part of that. Now, we do not have childcare. So those of you with small kids, parents, you have to work out, maybe swapping off one of you come one week and one come the next, or bring your kids. We don't care. It's going to be a great opportunity for us to pray together. We're going to spend time in adoration and praising and worshiping God through prayer. We're going to pray for our church. We're going to pray for our community. We are going to pray for our country, which desperately needs prayer today. And we're going to pray for the continents. And what we're going to do is each week do something a little bit differently. But this week, we're calling just a body to come together in this room and really begin to seek the heart of God in a matter of corporate praying. Now, we don't know where this is going to go after a month. We're just going to keep in step with the Spirit of God, give obedience to Him. It may, it may work its way out where we continue to do it. Maybe we move it to another night. Maybe we move it to small groups. Whatever the Lord's pleasure is in that, we want to give obedience to Him. So we want to encourage you to be part of that this coming Tuesday night from 6.30 to 7.30, and we will carry that out through the entire month of October. Well, we're in our series entitled For the Church, and we've been looking specifically at the letter that Paul wrote to Timothy, the first letter that he writes to Timothy, 1 Timothy. And Paul is in Macedonia somewhere. He's between jail sentences. He was in prison in Acts, and the way it ends in verse 20, chapter 28, he will end up being back in prison by 2 Timothy, and he will die in prison there. But during this time, he's writing to Timothy, giving him some instructions about how the church is to function and to live and to carry out ministry. And when he writes to Timothy, he is to pass this on for the church. And in this letter of six chapters, the Apostle Paul builds this whole instruction on three specific, what you might say, pillars. And here's what he says. He says to the church, we need to guard the gospel. Much of this letter is speaking about the guarding of the gospel in a corrupt culture. Then he talks about governing the church. There are specific ways that the church is to be governed, and he gives specific instruction for that, and to guide holy living. How we are to conduct ourselves as men and women in the body of Christ. Now, what the Apostle Paul doesn't do is he doesn't follow these pillars specifically, but he kind of jumps from pillar to pillar all through the course of this letter. In chapter one, he began by giving instruction of guarding the gospel against a counterfeit Christianity. We looked at that. And then he starts talking about how the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ transformed his own life in the second part of chapter one. Then when we get to chapter two, he gives instruction of how to guide holy behavior by beginning with prayer. The priority of the church is that we are to be a praying church. 
Then he jumps from there to guiding how we should respond in the body of Christ as men and women. And today we're in chapter three, and for the next two weeks, he's gonna be telling us about how to govern the church. How should the church be led? How should the church be governed? How do we decide upon those who lead and direct the ministries and the life of a local congregation? So that's what he's gonna talk about. He talks about pastors, chapter three, verses one through seven. Then he's gonna talk about deacons. Today we're gonna look at the role of leadership in the life of the church, particularly from the position of elders. Now, let me just say this. Most of us are thinking this is not the most exciting topic that we can talk about in the life of a church. Some of you may even be thinking it's irrelevant to your own life, that, that you know, why are we gonna spend time talking about these things of leadership? They really don't help me in my spiritual development as a believer. They really don't help me in the areas of weakness of temptation in my life. They really don't help me in my spiritual formation. There's nothing really practical for me in this. So why should we waste our time talking about the leadership in the life of a church? And it's very important for at least two reasons. Let me give you two main reasons we must take seriously and carefully the issue of leadership in a local church. Number one, the church does not progress beyond the spiritual maturity of its leaders. No church will progress beyond the spiritual leadership of its leaders or the maturity of its leaders. For example, if a leader isn't really deep spiritually, then the church will never move to a spiritual depth. If the pastor is here, the church typically is somewhere below it. If a church is not strong in doctrine, if the leadership is not strong in doctrine, then the church won't be strong in doctrine. And so the important thing for us to see is this, a pastor can never take a body in a place he has never been. And so it is vitally important that we have leaders who are growing, who are mature in their spiritual faith because that's the way that they disciple the church to be further developed in their own spiritual formation. But here's the second reason. The church takes on the characteristics of its leaders. Every church will take on the characteristics of its leaders. If your leaders are arrogant, you have an arrogant church. If your leaders are boastful and prideful, you have a boastful and a prideful church. If your leaders are humble, you will have a humble church. If your leaders are following the character of Christ, then you have a Christ-centered church. If your leaders are more focused on the truth of God's word than the cultural norms of the day, then you will have a church that will be focused on the truth of God's word. So leadership is very important and it's something that we have to look into. Now, here's another thing that we understand. When we're talking about leaders, today we're gonna to talk specifically about the leadership of pastors, those that God has called to specifically lead the church. Now, when it comes to the idea of pastors, there's so many different mindsets out there. What is the perfect pastor? What should a pastor be like? And over hundreds of years of collecting the information, and particularly in our culture, somebody has put together a list of those qualities that would make the perfect pastor today. Let me give them to you, okay? 
He is 30 years old and he's been preaching for 40 years. (laughs) He preaches exactly 10 minutes every Sunday. He condemns sin, but he never steps on anybody's toes. He works from eight in the morning till 10 at night, doing everything from sermon preparation to sweeping and janitorial responsibilities, but he never neglects his family. He makes $400 a week. He gives $100 to the church. He drives a late model car, buys lots of books, wears fine clothes, and he has a nice family. His wife is the pianist, the worship leader, and also responsible for all the ministries of the church, but is always there for her children. His children are perfectly behaved, smiling with great joy, but the seriousness of being under a watchful eye. He is tall on the short side, heavy set and thin in a sort of way, and he is handsome. His eyes are blue or brown. He wears his hair parted in the middle. The left side is dark and straight. The right side is brown and wavy. He has a burning desire to work with students, but he spends all of his time with senior adults. He smiles all the while keeping a straight face because he has a keen sense of humor, but he finds himself seriously dedicated. He makes 15 calls a day on church members. He spends all of his time evangelizing non-members, and he's always found in his office studying for his messages on Sunday. He's burned out by the time he's 36. I mean, people come up with all kind of ideas on what the perfect pastor is. But those are outside of the scope many times of what God's word says. And so this morning, what I want us to do, I I want us to look at what God's word has to say about those who lead us, the pastors and the life of the church. So here's what we're gonna look at this morning. We're gonna take chapter three, verses one through seven, and we're gonna break it down into four specific areas. Actually, I have five, but we'll, we'll look at four specific areas. Number one, we're gonna look at the conspicuous nature of an elder or a pastor. Secondly, we're gonna look at the calling of an elder or a pastor. Then we're gonna look at the character of an elder or a pastor. Then we're gonna look at the caution that God's word gives us towards elders and pastors, okay? So let's begin chapter three, verses one through seven for the church. Here's what he says. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, He desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that as we work through this this morning, you would help us in a very practical way of understanding the importance of godly qualified leadership in the life of a church. And Father, what even our responsibility is as members and fellow believers when looking at these issues of leadership 
for your body. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Here are the four things I want to give you this morning. First of all, let's look at the conspicuous nature of elders. What what do they look like? What are the obvious things that point out in Scripture for us on the role of a pastor? Let's look at verse 1. The Apostle Paul says the saying is trustworthy. That means you can count on it. It is scripture. It is inspired by God. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer. Now, an elder, overseer, and a pastor, we're going to look at how those terms are the same and how they're a little bit different. But here's the first thing we need, that when we go through the pages of Scripture, 70 times in the New Testament, the word elder is used, and it's to refer to the qualified men who lead the body of Christ. And so we find it 70 times in the New Testament, 20 times in the book of Acts and in the epistles. And the word elder many times brings up some images in our mind of old, bald-headed men with long beards. It may have been that for the Old Testament, but it's quite different in the New Testament. And when you look at the pages of Scripture in the New Testament, there are a number of things that we will find over and over about elders, and there are three conspicuous things about elders. Number one, they are men. Everywhere in the New Testament, without exception, every time you see the word elder, it is masculine in nature. And there are no exceptions to that. They're not an occasional time in scripture that you find the word elder used for a woman. It's always in the masculine and it's always God's design that as men of the spiritual leaders, as we saw last week in a complimentary relationship, men are called and given the responsibility to lead the church. So number one, they are men. Secondly, they are a plurality of men. Every time you see the word elder in scripture, It's almost always plural, with the exception of when Paul is talking about himself or Peter is talking about himself. Other than that, there's always a plurality of qualified men leading the body of Christ. We operate that way at Scotts Hill. We haven't always operated that way. When I first came here, we were a single elder-led congregational church. That means I was in charge of everything. I headed every single committee, every single group in the life of the church, and I was, as some people would say, the CEO of the body. But in 2013, we made a switch to that. We began studying what God's word says, and we see that there is no case in scripture where we find just one elder leading and guiding and overseeing the life of the church. There was always a plurality of elders. So in 2013, we moved from a single elder-led congregational church to a plurality of elder-led congregational church. We're still a congregational church, which means the elders may make recommendations to the body, but at the end of the day, the body makes the final decision and affirms or not affirms what the elders are recommending. So we now operate as a plurality of elders, and we have nine pastors and five lay elders that work together, leading and guiding the life of the church. So they are men, they're a plurality of men, and the third thing is they have a threefold responsibility. When you look at the role of elders or pastors, here's what we discover from the Greek language in the New Testament. There are three words that are used to describe elders. Presbyteros, presbyter, gives us the word elder. 
It means a person who's mature and has wisdom. Secondly, episkopos gives us the word bishop or overseer. It's a person who oversees and protects the body of Christ. And the third is poimen, which means shepherd or pastor. It's how we minister. We shepherd the flock of God. Now, there's some denominations that see these as a hierarchy. Some see that the bishop is the top, the elders in the middle, and the pastors were the lower on the, on the totem pole. But there's no description of that in scripture. In fact, when you go through the pages of scripture, all three of these are used interchangeably. For example, in Acts chapter 20, Paul says, and from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. He says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So all three are used for the same person, but specific task. We see it again in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Peter says, therefore, I exalt the elders, plural, among you as your fellow elder, it's singular because he's talking of himself, and witnesses of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight. So if we want to take a good definition of an elder, here's what it is. An elder is a qualified man who oversees the work of the church with other qualified men by means of shepherding. That's the conspicuous nature of every one of our pastors. We work together as a team of godly qualified men for the purpose of providing oversight in the life of the body, shepherding you, loving you, serving you for the glory of God. That's the conspicuous nature of every single elder. Now we have vocational elders, which means that's our full-time livelihood. And we have non-vocational elders, which have other jobs, but also serve along with pastors in a specific um, ministry that we call the Council of Elders. And it's in there, we work together for the glory of God and for your good. Our goal is never to lord it over anyone but to seek the heart of Christ in all measures, bringing those issues to you, asking you to pray for it, through it, and we walk together in it. There has been a time in the life of our church that we as elders have cast a vision. We brought it before the body, and the body said, no, no. And we saw, all right, God is sovereign. And in the midst of this, God used the body to direct us into a place that is better for us and for our future. And God has proven that to be true. So elders operate that way. Now, what is the calling of an elder? The second thing we see is not only the conspicuous nature of every elder, we see that every elder has a specific calling that we need to understand. Paul goes on, he says this, the saying is trustworthy if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. When we look at the calling of an elder, there are four things that Paul points out. Number one, it is a compelling calling. He says, if anyone aspires or desires. The word aspires is an external thing. It means to take a step toward. This is an internal, external step. A person takes a step towards something. But this other word, desire, means an internal passion. 
So the internal passion is what causes a man to take a step forward to fulfill that passion and that desire. Every elder begins with an internal call from the Spirit of God. It is the Holy Spirit of God who begins working in his life, calling him to ministry, and that elder has to take a specific step forward in obedience. It is not that an elder says, you know, this would be a really good move for me. No, it's that by the Holy Spirit, this is the only right move for me, and I must pursue it. Every one of our pastors on staff who are vocational know that they have experienced a call by God into full-time Christian service. And that call, it goes something like this. It's an unquenchable desire that can never be satisfied outside of obedience and serving the Lord with my life. I tell these young men, if you can do anything else, do it because you've not been called to ministry. But if there's nothing else you can do, and that's the thing that captures your heart and your mind and your soul, and every day all you do is think and live ministry, then that's a sign that God's spirit has called you into this task and you give obedience to it. It is a calling, not just simply a selection for a job career. Here's the second thing we see. It's a responsible calling. He says the office of overseer, And that means this, when we're called to this, we have a responsibility to help protect the body. Here's the other thing. Every single elder, every single pastor will one day stand before the Lord Jesus and give an account for every word spoken, every doctrine taught, and every lifestyle lived. This is not something that's light. This is something that's serious. And this is something that we come to grapple with. When I lay my head on the pillow at night, here's what I think very often. Father, one day I'm going to stand before you and I'm going to give an account on how I led my wife and my kids, but I'm going to give an account on how I led the body of Christ. And every one of our pastors understands this to be true. And that keeps us from being flippant. That keeps us from being pragmatic. That keeps us from just thinking, you know what? I can just do this. If it works, it doesn't. I can try this. I can try this. No, we have a responsibility before the Lord Jesus himself. And every week when I come stand on this platform, it is with fear and trembling, not because of you, well, maybe some of you, but it it, it is fear and trembling because I'm going to give an account for how I led you. So it's a calling, but it's a responsible calling. The third thing is, it is a worthy calling. He says he receives a noble task. The word noble gives us the sense of nobility. It gives us a sense of royalty. It gives us a sense that nothing is higher than this. I want to tell you, with my, my, my skills of leadership, and, and, and the skill set that God has given me, I could, I could go, could have been in the business world and worked as a CEO or something in other companies. But none of that would compare to being on the front row of watching the gospel change people's lives. Nothing. And I can't think of anything that I'd rather be a part of than to pray for people, to share the gospel with people who need the good news of Jesus, to help people work through difficult times of suffering and despair and loss and to watch God's work in their lives. It is a noble calling. But here's the fourth thing. It's a demanding calling. It is difficult. I would say this. 
If somebody wants to go into ministry because they think it's gonna be an easy job, I would say find something else. Go be a greeter at Walmart. It's far easier than ministry. And because it is a demanding thing. You deal with people, you deal with broken people. And I'm a broken person dealing with broken people. I have to deal with the own mess of my own life as I'm trying to deal with other people's lives. And it's heavy. There are times where people will walk with you. There are times people will abandon you. There are times where people will say, man, I love the way you teach. There'll be times where people say, I'm leaving the church because I don't agree with what you teach. It's a difficult thing. Matter of fact, I read some statistics this past week about the difficult nature of pastoring a church and particularly in these times. Let me give you some of them. 1,500 pastors leave the ministry permanently each month in America. 80% of pastors and 85% of their spouses feel discouraged in their roles. 70% of pastors do not have a close friend. Over 50% of pastors are so discouraged that they would leave the ministry if they could, but they have no other way of making a living. Over 50% of pastors' wives feel that their husband entering the ministry was the most destructive thing that has ever happened to their family. Only one out of 10 ministers actually finishes the ministry and goes into retirement. It is more difficult today than any other time. And you know what? I've often said to you, man, if I could have the job of that guy that just mows the grass on the interstate, man, what a job. You just get on your tractor, you put your earbuds in, listen to whatever you want to, drive down the road, mow the grass, park the tractor, go home, don't even think about it until the next day you get back on the tractor and you just mow until the end of the day where the guy picks you up, nothing else. You know, with the ministry, you never leave your work, never. I can turn my phone off, but I never stop thinking about you or the life of the ministry. Chris and I would go out for supper many times and we'd say, okay, tonight we're not talking about the kids and we're not talking about ministry. After five minutes, we had nothing to talk about (laughs) because it's our life. And that's true of every pastor on this staff. It is a demanding, demanding calling. My dad... I have two brothers, and my dad would often introduce his sons in this manner. This is Dennis, my son, who's the mechanic who's running my business and doing a great job. This is David. He's a professional painter. He owns his own company and is doing outstanding. This is Phil, the pastor who works one day a week. That's how he'd introduce us. Now, my dad was proud of me, but he couldn't conceive what's all involved in the life of a pastor. Now, we've talked about this conspicuous nature. We've talked about this this, um, calling, but now we're gonna talk about character, the character of an elder. And let me say this. In our culture today, this is sad, our churches tend to put way more weight on the personality of a pastor way more weight on the persuasive ability of communication that a pastor has, or maybe on his vision, maybe on his skill sets, maybe on his leadership. And somewhere along the way, character is kind of slow on the totem pole. 
Why? Because we all want a guy that's going to lead us and that's going to do well, but what we often overmiss is character. And character is one of the most important things. In fact, when you look at the criteria for an elder, of the 14 character traits that are mentioned, only one has to do with ability, and that's teaching. The rest of the, the, the characteristics of a godly elder have to do with how he lives his life. And this is not only true, listen, of pastors, but it is to be true of every ministry leader and every single member of the body of Christ. Why is character important? There's a little saying that goes like this. Your ideal is what you wish you were. Your reputation is what people say you are, but your character is who you are when no one's watching. Isn't that true? Your character is who you are when no one is watching. I was playing golf with a couple of pastors one day, not from this area, but, but while I was playing golf with them, there was this one guy, he was really crushing the ball. I mean, he was playing lights out, but he got to this hole and I'm watching him and he hits a ball and it goes into a ditch. And so I'm kind of watching, halfway watching him, kind of looking up and see what, what's he gonna do? He got over there to the ditch and he's looking around and he pulls a ball out of his pocket and he drops it and he says, found it! And I'm watching the whole time. I wish I had my phone, man. I wish I had a Woo. Well, he hit the ball, hit it on the green. He ended up birdieing the hole and he was going around, I birdied it, I birdied it. I'm thinking, actually, penalty stroke, you bogeyed it. But he didn't think anybody was watching. But there's what character is. Let me tell you why character is so important. Ministry is a character profession. Ministry is a character profession. You can be, a man can be an adulterer and be an outstanding brain surgeon. A woman can be an embezzler and be an outstanding accountant. A person can be an alcoholic and be an outstanding mechanic. But you cannot be any of those and be a good pastor. You cannot. Because if you look at the culture today, you look at a lot of churches and you look at these celebrity pastors that are out there. And if we're only wanting all of these top tiers of skill sets and abilities and the way they dress, then you know what? That becomes the most important thing. And character becomes secondary. But it's not the skill set that will hurt a church. It's a failed character that will bring embarrassment to the church and shame to the Lord Jesus. So here's what I'm gonna do. He lists 14 character traits. It's 1013, 1014. And you're thinking, okay, there, there are 14 of those. If he takes one minute, that's another 14 minutes. He ain't gonna take just one minute because he's not even being quiet right now to move on to it. So here's what I'm gonna do. For your sake and my sake, I'm gonna mention them, and I'm just gonna say very little about them. Basically, this is so rare for me, and you know that I never use notes, but I'm going to just read them so we can stay on track, okay? So let me give you 10 characteristics of a qualified leader, pastor, for the body of Christ. Paul says, number one, he must be a man of integrity. He must be a man of integrity. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. While the word translates blameless, it does not mean he is perfect. 
We all have flaws and failures from time to time. Only Jesus is perfect, but it does mean that there is not a habitual character flaw in his life that others can pin moral inconsistencies on. In other words, it's a person who lives upright before his people and a lost world, but he does have flaws. We all do. I do. I hate to tell you this, but I speed at times. I do. Now, if I constantly speed and run people off the road and cause accidents, there may be a moral flaw there that's deeper than just speeding. But I speed. I'll just be honest with you. And, and, and I, I picked Chris up from the airport one night. She flew in. It was 11 o'clock at night. And so I picked her up and we always go the back way. We go cut through trash little road and we hit blue clay and we come down Sidbury because there's no traffic and I can speed down. But anyway, I, I get to this stop sign and we're talking and I just slowly roll past the stop sign and I'm going on. All of a sudden there are blue lights behind me. I pull off the road and Chris said, what is he stopping for? I said, I think I rode past that stop sign. And he gets out, he says, good evening, sir. May I see your license? I said, yes, sir. Before you say anything, sir, let me say thank you for what you do. I'm so grateful for the way you put your life on the line every day. And sir, I don't know what I did, but whatever I did, I probably deserved it. I want you to know that. He says, do you know what you did? I said, yes, sir, I probably rode past that stop sign without stopping. He said, that's exactly what you did. Let me go check. He comes back. He says, sir, your record is so clean. I went back as far as I can find. I can't find anything on you. I said, well, thank you, sir. I said, the last ticket I got was in 1977. He said, what was that for? I said, rolling past a stop sign. <laughs> he said, I'm going to give you a warning. <laughs> he gave me a warning. But here's the point. None of our pastors are perfect. None of us. You're not perfect. We're not perfect. But the goal is to live our lives with integrity that says it's beyond the inconsistencies of moral failure. Here's a second one. It must be a man of fidelity. The husband of one wife. Now, this is a passage that has so many different interpretations, but let me just read what I wrote. Now, this verse is open up to much interpretation. When Paul says he is to be the man of one wife, is he speaking of polygamy? No, the church never practiced polygamy. Is he saying that a man cannot be single to be an elder? Absolutely not. Timothy was single, Paul was single, Jesus was single. Is he saying he can't be a widower and he can't remarry, but he has to remain unmarried? Not at all. Is he speaking about a man who has never been divorced? Many people will take this passage and build an entire position on that. But in none of these is he speaking about marital status. Here's what he's speaking about. He's speaking about a man's moral and sexual purity. He, if he's married, is committed to one woman, morally and sexually pure. If he is not married, he is still committed to morality and sexual purity. The whole purpose of this is a man lives in a way that his life demonstrates fidelity in all relationships. Now, I want you to know at Scott's Hill, we take the ideal when it comes to this. And the ideal is a man has been married and not divorced. We're not saying that a divorced man cannot ever be qualified to serve in a position as that. 
at Scott's Hill, what we're saying is the ideal is to have not been divorced. And so we choose the ideal when we provide areas of this. But it's speaking of fidelity. This is a person who's not just married, but has addictions to pornography. This is not a person who is married, but has multiple mistresses. This is a man who demonstrates fidelity in all that he does. Here's a third one. He must be a man of sobriety. He says he must be sober-minded and he must be self-controlled. Some of your translations might say temperate. Some of you say not giving too much drink. Sometimes it can be referred to the drinking of wine. And um, that you need to know this, there is no prohibition anywhere in scripture that an elder cannot drink. There's no prohibition in scripture about that. Timothy was an elder and he, Paul told him to take wine because of his stomach and his ailments. So there's no prohibition not to drink. He's not saying that every elder has to be a teetotaler in every aspect. That's not the point. The point here is a broader sense of sober thinking, of self-control in his thoughts. He is going to be a man who is going to be careful in the way he approaches difficult situations. He's not going to panic He's not going to be reactionary. He's always going to be sober-minded in every decision and every difficult thing that comes our way. I just think about what we had to deal with with COVID. And the thing I loved about our elders is how we said, we're going to, we're going to think critically through this whole thing. It's going to be based upon Scripture. It's going to be based upon the Spirit of God leading us. It's going to be based upon science. And it's going to be based upon a healthy, safe environment for our people. And as we walk through those things, I love that our men walk carefully. It's sober-mindedness. Then he talks, fourthly, about hospitality. The word hospitality can come from the word hospital, which means it's a person who cares for others. But the word hospitality means to love strangers. And it means this, that the elder is one who is not unapproachable. He is the one who loves people, who puts himself out there to be with people. If you have an introvert that never wants to be around people, that person will have a difficult time shepherding God's people. We have different personalities, but we are to be open to love people. Let's go on. Number five, he must be a man of biblical ability. It says he must teach. The only distinction between elders and deacons at this point is the ability to teach. And the teaching here is not just preaching, or teaching a class, it's being able to teach the word of God in every single setting. In other words, if a person comes to one of our elders and says, listen, I'm having a conflict with my brother, what should I do? That elder should say, well, let's see what God's word says. Or a woman comes to a person and says, listen, I'm trying to make a decision for my life with a new career, what do I do? That elder should always say, well, let's look at what God's word says. Or a person says, listen, I have some confusion about this doctrinal issue, what should the elder do? Hey, let's look at what God's word says. Do you see a pattern here? Every single elder should be so steeped in understanding of the word of God that we can teach it to anyone at any time. We must be ability to teach. Number six, must be a man who seeks harmony. Not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome. That means that all those come together. He must not be a person that's given to blows, that's really to pick a fight, that wants to be contentious, that wants to start a debate. No, an elder is a person who brings harmony. There can be a, a disagreement in positions, but it's always with the kindness and the gentleness of the Lord Jesus. Number seven, he must be a man of honesty. This is not a lover of money. 
which means this, he's not to be given over to wanting to pursue the things of the world, but he honestly recognizes that the finances and everything he has been given is by God, and he wants to be a manager of the things of God, and he's going to be content in his life. It doesn't mean he doesn't have money. It just means he's not driven by it, and he's got an honest approach when it comes to the issues of finances. Number eight, he must be a man of dignity. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children with submissiveness. He's a man who models in the home what he models in the world. One of the things I used to love about my kids, and they would say this, Dad, you're no different on a pulpit than you are at home. You're bad in both places. No, <laughs> but no, we, we are to be that. And the thing is, which means this, this man of God who's leading the church should be leading his family well. Now, does that mean he, that everything's perfect? I mean, this is not a perfect home. He doesn't have a perfect wife. He doesn't have perfect kids. To have all that would be perfectly annoying. Nobody's like that. Somebody's gonna get mad and kick the cat. And that's perfectly fine with me if you kick cats. I really don't. <laughs> no, I'm kidding, not every day. Even a cat deserves a Sabbath. But, uh, but... This is a person who demonstrates a stable heart for people and the quality of the gospel. Number nine, he must be a man of humility. He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. That means this, this is a person that must be mature. And so it's a person of humility. One of the things that we do at Scotts Hill is we do not look for uh, men who have only been in the life of the church for a short time or men who have only been converted to Christ for a short time because there has to be humility. And when you put somebody in a position like that, the natural thing that can come out is pride. And we want no hint of spiritual elitism or self-righteousness among our pastors. Here's the last one. He must be a man of respectability. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. This is so huge. That person must not only have a respectable character in the body, but in the culture as well. I love what one church does in Birmingham. This is bold. If you're going to be considered as an elder... Not only is your name given to the church for the members of the body of Christ to observe, your name goes into the, the, the community newspaper. And in that newspaper is this heading. It's saying these men are desiring to serve as elders at such and such a church. If you know anything about them that lacks the character of Christ, let us know. Wow. I like that. So I don't think many of you are going to be signing up for elders in the future. Huh? <laughs> but that is the reality. And we should live beyond reproach in such a way that our neighbors would say, that guy's an elder. That guy's a pastor in his church. Instead of like the man who came to me last week, this guy's a deacon and he doesn't even believe Jesus is the only way to heaven. Not in Scotts Hill. But in another church. And so we're to live in such a way that, it, now let me just say again, none of your pastors will be hit a 10 in all of these areas. We can't. If, if, if you get behind me and I'm speeding, just flash your lights. 
Say, slow down, pastor. I've had people do that. Now, I'm making it sound really bad. I don't speed that much. Come on. Um, But here's the thing. None of our pastors, none are perfect. When it comes to the ratio of perfection in humanity, here's the ratio. One to humanity is Jesus. He's the only one. But our desire as pastors is to try to live in such a way that we model the character of Jesus. Now, time's up. I actually got three minutes. Let me give you the caution to elders. And I'm speaking to our elders, but you're gonna hear this. Number one, the caution. The temptation to shine. I'm a pastor of the church. I've got a high position. I'm important. I want to be in the limelight. I want everybody to know what I do and who I am. And when I walk into a room, I want everybody to bow down to me. There is a temptation to shine. And I would say to every one of our pastors, elders, make sure you do not fall into that temptation because the Lord Jesus never did. He never did. Here's a second temptation. The temptation to recline. Recline. I think of lazy boy when I think of reclining. And I know a lot of pastors and a lot of people who serve in the life of the church that are a bunch of lazy boys in a lazy boy because they look and say, you know, ministry is real easy. I can do whatever I want. I don't have to work as hard. I don't have, now I will say this. We do not have the demands of having to go to a factory or a plant every single day. But we have a respect an expectation for all of our pastors to work as hard as you do. And there is never a time where we're going to slow down and just recline. We want to work hard. And here's the last one, the temptation to whine. The temptation to whine. I used to always say I'd be a great pastor if it wasn't for these people. And we can whine so easily. You whine. I can whine. And pastors can whine. And we're never called to do that. We are called to have the very character of Jesus. In Philippians chapter 2, says we do not consider ourselves to be above others. We put others before ourselves. Jesus did not see equality with God, something to be grasped, but he humbled himself, took the form of a servant, and was obedient even to the point of death, death on a cross. And that's who we are. So what's the charge to the church? What do you do for us? Two things. Number one, pray for your elders. Pray for your pastors. If you want us to be successful, pray. If you want us to be holy, pray. If you want us to be kind, pray. If you want us to be effective in our ministries, pray. Several years ago, I read about a group of men from a church who went to a seminary to speak with a seminary professor, and they said, here, we want to ask you a question. We want to ask you, how do we get rid of our pastor we don't like? They asked the seminary professor that. Well, the professor knew exactly what they were asking, so he said this. He said, let me give you a couple of things to do that will get rid of your pastor. Number one, the next time he is preaching, shout amen, he'll preach himself to death. He said, secondly, go down to him at the end of an invitation and say, pastor, I just want to confess to you that I've not been praying for you adequately. From this point on, we are committed to pray for you. 
Thirdly, pray for his sermons before Sunday gets there, that he would preach the most powerful sermons that anybody has ever heard. If you do those three things, some larger church will come and get him off your hands and you won't have to worry about him anymore. So we pray. Pray for our pastors, every one of them. Lastly, partner with your elders. Because just as the characteristics of godly leadership is for us, they are for you as well. And we partner together, not to make our jobs easy, but to make them joyful. And that you would be joyful. And as we walk together in this, the perfect example of this is the Lord Jesus. He completely gave obedience to his father and he took on human flesh and he came. Jesus perfectly modeled servanthood where he laid down his own life for others and he washed the feet of his disciples, even the betrayer, Judas. And Jesus perfectly obeyed by going to the cross and dying on our behalf, rising from the dead. And even today, he sits at the right hand of the Father interceding for you and me. I want to tell you, ministry's tough. And we will have times of struggle and difficulties. The church will go through times of struggle and difficulty. But when we do this together, as leaders and as members walking together for the glory of Christ, the world will look out and see a church that is functioning in a way that God desires it to function for his glory and for your good. So as we as elders seek to lead you, it is our commitment to please the Lord Jesus first in everything we do. And then to lead you in a way that we are not only in positions of authority, but we are in places of example in our lives. So as we close this, I just want to encourage us to be the kind of church that as we seek to govern for God's glory, that we do this together. Let's pray. Father, thank you. I thank you for this church. I thank you for the people that you've called me and our pastors to serve. I thank you for the way that you've put together ministry team, leaders, coordinators, directors, assistants, and every one of us seek to follow this model. And I pray, Father, that in the life of this church, that there would be a genuine love and passion for one another, regardless of the positions that we hold. That, Father, our desire at the end of the day would be to please your heart and to be the kind of people that you want us to be so that the world would be attracted to authenticity and to real, faithful, Christian living. Father, guide us in that. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. And we hope that God uses this message in you to transform you more into the image of Christ. If you have any questions about our church or you want to learn more about Jesus, visit our website at scottshill.org slash next steps. Till next time.